Thank you, Michael, for leading the service. And uh, Michael read the passage that, uh, in fact, it still says on the internet we're looking at this morning. I have to confess that when I came to prepare it, uh, back before camp, I realised that we weren't going to get through all of that this morning. Um, so, God willing, it'll be over two weeks. So, for this morning, we're just going to look in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, from verse 14 down to verse 22. Um, if you can remember back as far as the start of chapter 8, you remember that the whole issue was over whether or not it was okay to eat food that had been um, sacrificed to idols. You remember that the uh, situation there in Corinth and in the Gentile world at that time um, was that one, the fear of demons getting into your body through food and two, the need to placate your gods. You would take your food to your temple of your false god and there it would be divided by the priest into three lots. Uh, one lot would be literally burned as a sacrifice to that god. One lot would be kept as the priest and one lot would be blessed or whatever term they would have used for it um, in the name of their false god and return to you which you would then take home and eat. You would be happy as a, a pagan believer in this false god that that food was now safe and no demons were travelling on it and thereby going to enter your body. Uh, your false god was pleased because you'd sacrificed to him and the priest was pleased because he now had a big supply of good quality meat, uh, of course of which he couldn't eat all of it, so he would sell back a lot of it to the marketplace, which left Christians with two problems. One, if you went to the marketplace, and in the verses that Michael went on and read there, it was good that he did, um, he, he reminds us what the two problems were. If you went to the marketplace and you wanted to buy meat, how did you know what had happened to that meat before it ended up in the market? It may have been offered to a false god, and some Christians were concerned about that. Uh, similarly, if you went to eat with a non-Christian, how did you know what rights had been carried out over the piece of meat that was being served at your meal? And you remember back in chapter 8, Paul's conclusion is, if your conscience is clear, go ahead and eat it. There is absolutely nothing wrong with it. You eat it with a clear conscience before the Lord. Scripture doesn't say it's wrong to do so. So enjoy eating it, unless by doing so you will cause a weaker Christian to stumble and maybe sin. And if there's any possibility of that, then you don't do it. And he spent really two chapters dealing with this. He's dealt with it theologically. He's dealt with it from his own experience. He's dealt with it from the teaching of Old Testament that we've got to be more concerned about harming a Christian brother than ever we have about enjoying our own freedom in Christ. That takes the priority. Our concern has got to be, our love has got to be for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that means I don't enjoy all the freedoms that I could do as a Christian, that is a small price to pay for the well-being of my brothers and sisters. So that was where Paul's been. And then we come to this verse 14. And it might seem at first reading that he's now turning around and arguing completely the opposite. Because in these verses he argues categorically, you don't eat meat that's being offered to false gods. So has Paul changed his mind? Has he suddenly lost track of his thinking and, and now arguing against what he's been arguing? Or is there a different situation here that he's dealing with? Well, obviously, it won't surprise you if I say that this is a very different situation that he's dealing with here. This isn't about going to the marketplace and buying meat of an unknown origin. It's not about going into a friend's home to have a meal with them, not knowing what has been done to that meat before you sit down to eat it. This is about deliberately going to places where you know it is a pagan activity that you're going to. In Paul's day in Corinth, the great social delight, the great social time spender, you didn't have 
um, iPods, you didn't have Xboxes, you didn't have uh, any of those sort of things. What you did was you went out eating socially. And most of those social activities took a, a place around the worship of some false god. It was all tied up in the religions of that city. And this would have cut right to the heart of many of the Christians because many of the Christians would have enjoyed that. Before they became Christians, that was what they spent their lives doing. And now they're Christians, why should they change that? After all, they now know that these false gods are nothing. Paul said as much back in chapter 8. He said that we know that there there are no gods except the true God. So what does it matter if they go along and take part in these mills? They know that all the words that are being said, all the ceremonies that are being practised there are meaningless. Their conscience is clear, they are going to go and do it. And Paul says, no you're not. This is something very, very different indeed. Does that sound sort of familiar to us in our generation? Isn't that the heartbeat of so many Christians? Why shouldn't I do that? You know, maybe it is associated with things that I know are wrong, but I know those things aren't of any real meaning. I've been saved, I'm free, I I want to be able to enjoy my freedom in Christ, I'm going to do it. And the very mention of the possibility that God's word might actually speak against that, they immediately get very defensive and very much on their platform and don't lecture me, I'm, I'm going to do this and it's not for you to judge me. That's our generation, isn't it? Don't judge what anyone else does. Don't criticise what anyone else does. It's up to each person to just determine in their own minds and hearts what works for them. In many parts of the world today, satanic activity is very evident and very clear, isn't it? You go to Africa, you go to India, you go to other countries in this world. Nobody is confused about the reality of demonic activity in Satan. It's very much there, it's very open It's very evident. In our land, it's very hidden, isn't it? Uh, And yet it's there. I think that's the thing we need to grasp as Christians, perhaps more than anything else when we come to a passage like this. It's not the fact that Satan is active in Africa and he's active in India, but he's not active in Britain. He is equally active everywhere. And he's just as active in society here and in the uh, systems here and in the hierarchical system of, of everything here. It's interesting, we were talking to Henry Alonga about it when he was here and he was sharing from some of his experiences having had invitations to go and sing at uh, many big events here in this country uh, people very high up in different sectors of society and, and he said it's very evident that once you start looking into these higher levels whether it's in banking, whether it's in government, whether it's in media whether it's in sport, whichever one it is he said it becomes so clear where Satan is actually there and active in it uh, but he said, but at the lower levels, you know, it's like bad fish with a big layer of tartare sauce over the top. It smells good and it even tastes okay. And yet it's rotten inside. And, and I believe God has got much to say to us through these verses here this morning. Here's the first thing. Look, verse 20, you participate with pagans when you get involved in something like this. Did you notice how many times there in those verses the word participation is used? It's twice in verse 16. It's there again in verse 18. It's there in verse 20. To make his point, Paul points out to the Christian that these activities that the pagans take part in are the equivalent of the Christian's celebration of the Lord's Supper. He's saying those activities to them is what the Lord's Supper is to us. 
So he says, what happens when we participate in the Lord's Supper? Verse 17, we who are many are one body for we all participate of one loaf. One of the key features of the Lord's Supper is that it's a a fellowship event, isn't it? It's a coming together as Christians. Scripture doesn't really understand the idea of one person celebrating the Lord's Supper on their own in isolation. Of course, for some, that's the only way they can do it. If they're in prison for their faith, if they're in a country and they know of no other Christian around them, if they're a missionary out in the mission field, it might be that they have to celebrate it in that way. But but the whole idea of the Lord's Supper is that it's a coming together of like-minded believers to celebrate it. And Paul points out in verse 17, we who are many are one body. It's a mutual act, it's a mutual enjoyment, it's a mutual participation. So says Paul, can't you see exactly the same argument applies in every other activity. Now many activities are completely harmless, aren't they? We go to a football match and we identify immediately that we're going to participate with other supporters of that football team. That's the whole attraction. You go and you're standing with a group of like-minded fellow enthusiasts for that team. You wear the same scarves, you wear the same uh, rosettes and all the rest of it. You're shouting out for the same team. You readily recognise that it's a participation together in that. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's completely harmless as long as your language is appropriate and so on. That's that's an innocent expression of participation with other people. You're going to school to learn. You're there with other non-Christians. You're learning together in a classroom. It's It's a mutual sharing. And again, it's a right one. But, says Paul, when you go to these activities that are in the name of some false god or in recognition of some false god, you're participating with pagans who believe in that god. You're joining yourself with them. You're becoming one with them in that activity. And that, he says, is horrific. Young people, can I especially warn you, although it's a warning to all of us, We live in a day and age, don't we, in Britain, where while the satanic activity is very much under the surface, the practices that Satan is working through are very open and very evident in our land. You go into any bookshop, if you got into a bookshop 50 years ago, you would have probably found a religion section, whereas now it tends to be a spirituality section, and that religion section would have been predominantly or exclusively Christian. Some of the books might have been very bad Christian books, but they would have been basically on on the Bible. You go into a bookshop now and you look for the spirituality section or whatever it is, if you can find it, and it's likely to be books on witchcraft, uh, meditation, yoga, anything and everything. Sects, other religions, and somewhere in amongst them you might find one or two copies of the Bible. That's our generation. That's our land. And what a temptation to think, well, what's the harm in that? I'm quite interested in finding out about yoga and meditation or uh, divination or whatever it might be. And you're participating in that with others who believe in it. Though the money that you spend on that book is going to someone who practices it. It's going into the coffers of some society that supports it. You're participating with those people in something that is of Satan. 
someone says, well, let's play Ouija. Have you played Ouija for the evening? You know, and Young says, it seems like a harmless entertainment. It isn't, because you're participating with people who believe in that, who are using it as a means to be directed by demons. You pick up your paper and you find the horoscope and you think, well, I don't believe any of this rubbish, but I'll just read it anyway. And you're participating with those who do believe it, whether you believe it or not. You think, well, I, I don't know, it'd be quite interesting one year to go down to Stonehenge on the summer solstice and, uh, and see and, and be part of the big activity there. I mean, it'd be quite awesome, wouldn't it, to see the sun coming up over the horizon and all the thousands of people there. And that's pagan activity, worshipping false gods. And Paul says, therefore, you don't have anything to do with it. However much in your mind you know it's wrong, however much in your mind you know that it's, it, it's no effect, however much in your mind you know that it's meaningless to you, you don't do it because you'll be participating with those who do believe it. That's his first argument. His second argument is this. You participate actually with demons. Look at verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. You go back to the Lord's Supper, we said it's one of the big aspects of the Lord's Supper is the fact that it's a, a fellowship event. It's, it's a mutual sharing together. That's a key factor of it, but it's not the most important aspect of it, is it? I remember Rico Tice, uh, vicar at All Souls, who did the Christianity Explored course, uh, talking about uh, an occasion when he went to take communion to a lady who couldn't get to the church. And he said that he likes to be clear that the person understands what's happening. And he said, I said to her before we, I started uh, sharing it, do you, do you understand what this is about? She said, yes, this is about fellowship. And he said, yes, it is about fellowship, but do you understand more importantly than that what it's about? She said, no, it's about fellowship. He said, no, 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 it's about the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on a cross to save you. And she said, oh, I don't like thinking about that. that that's, that's horrific. It's about fellowship. She said, I, I really don't want to think about that. He said, well, I've got to be honest, I don't really want to think about sharing communion with you. He said, you, you, you're not seeing what it's about. It's about fellowship, yes, but more than that, it's about Christ. It's about being in a relationship with him. And Paul uses exactly the same argument here. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're participating in Christ. One of the things I always look forward to on camp if we go to Chichester is that there's a bookshop there. It's actually in the oldest, I didn't know this till this time, it's in the oldest building in Chichester. Uh, it's a little old Saxon church used to be and now it's a, 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 a Christian bookshop. I use the word Christian carefully. There are certainly the majority of books in there I, I wouldn't consider reading. But I always like going in there because there's a second-hand section and a sales section. And in amongst all the rubbish you find some really good books. I actually managed to buy three books at a pound each. I thought that was a real bargain. And uh, one of them I just started reading, and it's um, uh, sermons by Robert Bruce, who was a late 16th century uh, preacher in Scotland. And these are all sermons on the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says. The word, meaning the Bible, leads us to Christ by the ear. The sacraments lead us to Christ by the eye. Of the two senses which God has chosen as most fitting for the purpose of instructing us and bringing us to Christ, that doctrine must be most effectual and moving which awakens and stirs up most of the outward senses for that which awakens not only the ear but the eye, the taste, the feeling 
and all the rest of the outward senses must move the heart most and will pierce into the soul. And so it is. This doctrine of the sacraments moves, stirs up and awakens most of the outward senses. Therefore, if we come to it well prepared, it must be most effectual in stirring up the inward senses of the dull hearts. And he's right, isn't he? It speaks to us through all the senses that we've got and brings us into that deeper, richer, wondrous relationship with Christ. As by faith we feed on him. And Paul says exactly the same argument holds when you participate in something that is not of the Lord. We live in a generation, don't we, where there are many religions, many sects, all around us. And there are some who would profess to be Christians who say, I can't see anything wrong at all in being involved with those as well. Let, let's talk about what we've got in common instead of the things that divide us. Let, let's share a platform. Let's, let's promote peace, whatever it might be. We can work with these people to that end. Paul's answer would be, we can't. Because they are not participating in Christ. There is one God, Jehovah God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit who has for the whole of eternity existed in three persons who can only be approached through the Lord Jesus Christ through the sacrifice of his blood upon the cross. That is the only acceptable way to come to God. Now I want to say this very gently and clearly because I have great respect for people of other religions. I'm not on an anti-people who worship other gods than I. I've got great respect for them. I believe many of them are extremely sincere people. I believe they're very um, devout people. I believe they're people who take very seriously their beliefs and, and their system. But my friend, that doesn't make them right. You can be very sincere and you can be very sincerely wrong. You can be very devout, but very devoutly wrong. I don't understand the mind that says... I can see very clearly in the Old Testament that God says every other religion is wrong and must be avoided and mustn't be touched and mustn't be dealt with, that you're to be totally separate from it, but then says, but I don't see that that applies now in our world today. Wherever in Scripture does it indicate that? What applied then applies now. God is a holy God. And these other religions for all that you might be able to look at them and say, well, at least they're doing that in the world and at least they're doing that and they're not doing that. I accept all of that. They are not worshipping God. Now, if they're not worshipping God, what is the power behind them? If it's not Jehovah God, who or what is it? Paul's answer is very clear. It's demons. It's against God. It is keeping people from Christ. It's leading people astray. Who does that but Satan? And so Paul says to get involved in any of those things, to participate in any of those things, you are participating with demons. Now what Christian would want to do that? What Christian would, when they sit down and think about it, want to do that? If you was going to go out for a meal this evening with some people and you knew that before you took that meal someone was going to stand up and instead of giving thanks to God was going to give thanks to a demon for that food and ask that that demon would bless it to your bodies would you go? of course you wouldn't I hope there's none of us here in this room would consider going and Paul says that's what it is 
And God is a holy God. Thirdly, you put yourself in the way of temptation. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Paul's whole point in the preceding verses here, there's no temptation that sees you except what is common to man. God will provide you a way whereby you can stand up under it. And then his punchline is flee from idolatry and the NIV and ESV have, have broken that into the next section as a new paragraph with the following verses. Here's the way of doing it, says Paul. Flee from idolatry. Don't go looking for it. Don't go putting yourself in the place of temptation. Keep away from it. Even if you figure that there is somehow you could participate in these things without actually sinning, and I'm not at all sure that there is, you would at the very least be putting yourself in a place of temptation. You tell me that if you read your horoscope every day for a year, you're not going to be tempted to start believing something that's in there, because I don't believe you. If you start reading that every day for a year, and behind it is the demons and Satan, and he's got some knowledge, he hasn't got, he's not omniscient like God, but he knows some things, and some things are going to come through anyway by chance, or providence, or whatever words you use, I mean, they're so broad and general in the things they say in them. But you tell me, if you don't read that every day for a year, you're not going to be start to be tempted to think that I, need, I want to have a look at that tomorrow. Be interested to know what it says tomorrow. And then it goes from being interested to know to, okay, maybe I'd better start thinking about what I do tomorrow. Because it's starting to shape your mind. You tell me if you play Ouija, that it's not going to start shaping the way you think. If you go to some sort of meditation exercises that's based on some system where you think and you, and you put yourself into a state of mind where you, you attain some sort of spirituality and some sort of peace through meditation, which isn't God's way. That that's not going to start shaping the way you think and the way you reason about prayer and about all sorts of things, because it will. You put yourself in the place of temptation. I remember... I'm a Christian, I, I don't know if he's still alive, I, I, he might well be. Um, when I first moved to Three Bridges, I started uh, getting involved with, uh, sorry, when I grew up in Three Bridges, first got involved in youth work there, he was the leader of the Covenanter group at the time. Uh, a lovely Christian, a mature man, and um, knew his Bible extremely well. I gave some, some idea of how well he knew it, so I remember us doing a quiz one week in Covey's, and um, we said, uh, we, Skittles, you know, what, what we do here? And we said, the next time we play it, you're going to have to tell us something about the, the name. Because you're not just, because they're all learning all these names, obscure names. We said, make it worthwhile, find out something about the name. And I said, oh yeah, and you can't use genealogies like Matthew 1. And he said, no, no, let me use Matthew 1. He said, I know it off by heart. And that was, that was the sort of guy he was. He'd learn whole chapters of scripture off by heart. And he was telling me that uh, a few years previous to that, before I moved up there, he tried to commit suicide. He'd actually driven out in a car with the means to do it and he'd sat there ready to commit suicide. He'd got so far from the Lord and uh, he, he didn't do it, obviously, and he came back and he spoke to the pastor, who was then the pastor of the church, and he said, the pastor was there in my house and he said to me, can I make the first suggestion is this, destroy all the books on that bottom row of your shelf. 
and he said I'd got a whole load of books on different things that he said I'd bought out of interest to, to find out about them to know how to counter the arguments of them and all this sort of thing and he said it was the best piece of advice I've ever been given he said I destroyed the lot and he said straight away my life started to turn around he said just having them there and just looking at them and just reading them occasionally was, was damaging my relationship with Christ and it brought me down to that point of absolute despair And fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, you put yourself in the wrong with God. Look at verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Is that what we try to do as Christians? He's already said in verse 14 that it's idolatry. Listen to what God gave to Moses in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here Paul reminds the Corinthians of the Lord's own words. Verse 22 Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? What a thought. What a thought that as a Christian I should do something that is going to provoke a reaction like that in God. And it's as though Paul anticipating that sort of rhetorically asked, are you stronger than God? Do you somehow think you could do that and stand up against God and win? That's the sense of what he's saying, isn't it? Are you so indifferent to arousing God's jealousy that you think it's of no effect? If God gets cross with me over this, if God gets angry with me, I can beat him. What a ludicrous idea, says Paul. So why on earth would you think of doing it? Friends, we live in such a day of compromise, don't we? Nothing must be labelled black or white we must never judge what another's doing. We mustn't be concerned even about judging ourselves. This is such a passage for our generation, isn't it? Paul's saying, look, Christians are called to come out of their society. We're called to be holy and separate unto the Lord. When the tide goes that way, we're called to swim that way. When everybody's marching that way, we're called to march this way. We're called to, to, to be diametrically opposed to all that our generation tells us is right that's outside of God's word because we're serving a holy God we're serving a God who cares about these things we're serving a God who claims us we are in Christ and we're serving a God who calls us to be together in Christ and I know we've got loved ones who are outside of Christ and we want to win them for Christ. And we do that. We reach out for them with love. But being careful that we don't get contaminated by them at the same time. Isn't that what God teaches? Snatch them from the fire but without getting burnt yourself in the process. Do you know, I think perhaps my biggest prayer to God in these verses that we looked at this morning is this that he just opened our eyes to see the reality of Satan in our generation and in our land. Until you go to Africa and you very quickly recognise the presence of Satan. Don't you, Ted? 
so obvious in the activities that are going on all around you. You go to India, you'd see the same. You go to many parts of the world. And yet here in our culture and our generation, it's as though everything is Christian. And the reality is Satan is just as much at work and he's probably more successful because most people don't even see him there. Let's pray. Father God, I know my own heart and I'm sure the heart of each one of us here that we certainly don't want to arouse your jealousy against us. We recognise you're a holy God. We recognise you're the only God. We recognise that all other systems, all other religions, all other beliefs are against you. And your word is so clear on that. And we're surrounded by people who follow those religions. We're surrounded by people who willingly or unwillingly, knowingly or unknowingly worship Satan in so many different ways. And you've called us out of that into your glorious light. And you've called us into a living relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And you've called us out of it into a new family of believers. Oh Father, would you help us to find our joy and our delight there. Father, I know how easy it is just once dip your toe in the waters outside and soon find yourself up to the neck and swimming. Father, would you keep us from that, I pray. Father, would you preserve us. Father, may we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life to those who are perishing. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.